Hi, friends. Welcome to the Mobile Bev Pros Podcast, a podcast dedicated to providing mobile bar professionals with the information they need to succeed. I'm your host and fellow mobile bar owner, Sarah Murphy. Each episode, I'll be bringing you interviews, knowledge, anecdotes, or opinions with the goal of assisting you in building a profitable, sustainable, and scalable mobile bar business that will support the lifestyle you dream of. I'm excited for today's episode, so let's get started. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Chris Funstill from A Bar Above. A Bar Above is an educational platform and a site for bar equipment. And our topic today is mixology concepts and event tactics for batching and scalability. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Sarah, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Me too. I'm also a little nervous because you have a very, very successful podcast of your own that's currently on pause. So you had some availability to chat with me here today. But as podcasts go, yours is uh, one of the better ones out there. So for any of the listeners looking for an alternative to the Mobile Bev Pros podcast, check out A Bar Above. Is the name of the podcast A Bar Above or is it Mixology? Yeah, we uh, changed it over. It used to be called the Mixology Talk. I know we did a rebranding about a year ago. So it's the A Bar Above podcast, but you could probably find us under either one. I did. Yeah. And both of them, uh, you popped up and I was like, do you have two? But no, it's just the one. You just a little, a little rebrand. Right. Amazing. So when we talked in our little pre-conversation, there was no shortage of things that you could speak on. <laughs> but we we narrowed it down to, to two, really. You, you have extensive experience in event bartending, even though that's not specifically what you do any longer. But you also have an online educational platform specific for certifying people in mixology, which I absolutely love. It's not something I specifically teach on, bartending and mixology. And so I'm hoping today that we can talk a little bit about the concept of mixology, the the theory and the science behind crafting a delicious, well-balanced cocktail. I am so excited. I'm (laughs) going to nerd out on you and just just reel me in. That's that's all I got to say. Just reel me in. Bring it in. Bring it on. (laughs) <laughs> Where should we start, Chris? Uh, you know what? It's completely up to you. I know a lot of your listeners are um, event bartenders. And as you mentioned, I've done that quite a bit in the past. So I can speak a lot of the volume side. I can speak a lot of the, the creation side. They kind of go hand in hand, in my opinion. We could also kind of bring in some of the business and kind of the setup side of it as well. So I think as far as what makes sense is maybe to kind of outline kind of a, a big idea that will make I think this conversation a little bit easier for everybody to listen to. And this is not a concept that's really kind of out there. Um, If people are kind of at the forefront of cocktail knowledge, they'll probably have understood this concept, but the concept of cocktail families, this is a really big concept um, that takes you out of a recipe book and into foundational structure of a drink. So the way I like to describe it is if you come over to my house and you say you want an omelet, I understand what that means, right? It's egg, potentially cheese, meat, and a vegetable in there. And then I can look inside of my fridge and kind of pull all those ingredients out and I can make you an omelet. So when we talk about cocktails, it's very much a similar approach. So if you come up to me and say, Chris, I want a sour style cocktail. That is a cocktail family. What that means to me and what you're communicating to me as a bartender is you want something with spirit, you want something with acid, and you want something with sweetener in there. And so now I can look inside of my pantry or my flavor library, or whatever you want to call it, and I can build a cocktail based off what you just told me. So if I have gin, if I have rum, if I have vodka, 
I can throw all those things in there or one of those in there. If I have lemon, lime, those are typically the, the main ones. I can use either those in there for the acid. And for the sweetener, you can go crazy. You can go to town. You could use agave nectar. You could use maple syrup. You could use a simple syrup. You could use a flavored simple syrup. Like that opportunity to create something unique. Once you understand those principles, it gets you out of a recipe book where you can have hundreds of recipes. And if you understand that concept, the opportunities to create a cocktail are literally limitless. You can make a million cocktails based off of you know a handful of cocktail families. And I'm not exaggerating. I've been doing it for eight years, and I still have probably not made the same cocktail twice for the blog <laughs> and for the, for the website. So the understanding of cocktail families is really kind of the linchpin into unleashing creativity in the cocktail space, in my opinion. What are those foundational cocktail families? The sour is one of them that you mentioned. What are, what are the others? Right. And this is where it's going to get a little bit tricky because every bartender kind of has their own formulas for what classifies itself as a cocktail family. I think most of the industry kind of agrees that there's about six main cocktail families. So if you take like a spirit driven cocktail, like the old fashioned, for example, there is a formula inside of that. So that could be considered a cocktail family. The sour could be another cocktail family. The other one's kind of escaped me right now, but cocktail codex. If you haven't read the book, it's a good place. So I can look that up real quick and just give you a brief overview of the six. And it won't take long. So what they outline is the old-fashioned, the martini, the daiquiri, which is basically a sour, the sidecar, which is kind of a what we would consider a daisy, like a margarita, the highball, and the flip. And the flip is kind of a very unique style of cocktail. And I would not recommend that for high-volume events because it has a full egg in it, including the yolk. So it's very a la minute style bartending. So yeah, those are kind of the big ones that we talk about. Awesome. Yeah. So in full transparency, my menu, which I had established, probably had about 40 to 50 cocktails that I knew did well at events that were crowd pleasers that my clients, my hosts could choose from. Now, if they wanted to go off the menu, they were welcome to do that. But people have an analysis process when you can make a zillion cocktails, like how do you start? And so I, I gave them a menu to start with. And so the vast majority of the ones on that menu were sours. Absolutely. And I just found them to be like crowd pleasers. Everyone's kind of familiar with them. You could use a lot of the same foundations and uh, like, it's hard to go wrong with them. They're also not super high spirited. So like, yeah, martinis and old fashions, they're delicious, but they also have a ton of booze in them, which is great if you're having it before dinner at a restaurant. Not so great if you're drinking all night long. Absolutely. And this was this is something that I would highly caution anybody against, and especially in this this space, is you really are responsible for controlling the alcohol consumption of your guests. Do yourself a favor and set yourself up for success and not offer those really boozy cocktails because it can go sideways real fast. Yeah. So of those six, we the flips are gone. We're not doing those. What are the ones that you most recommend for the events and volume-based industry. And then talk a little bit about what those the formula looks like in, in regards to what, what they're composed of. Absolutely. Yeah. No. So I think you hit the nail on the head with the, uh, the sour. I think that's just a classic formula. It's basically lemonade where you take the water out and you add alcohol. I mean, that's when you look at it, that's essentially what you're doing. But within that, it gives you a lot of room to navigate. So typically the formula is that I like to start with is like a 2 one So you have two ounces of alcohol. You can obviously pair that back. So two parts alcohol, one part sweet, one part sour. And within that, you can scale up, scale down, whatever you want to do. If it's too tart for you, 
take a little bit of that acid back. So maybe it's two, three quarters, three quarters is a pretty standard formula too. But that, like I said, just gives you a really good starting place for balance and for a really good cocktail. And then within that, you could do really interesting things like add sparkling water to it or a sparkling element to it, like a, a LaCroix or a ginger beer even, and kind of tailor it that way. Because when you're at a festive party, something with carbonation is just, it is so refreshing and it's so easy to drink. And that allows you to kind of scale back a little bit of that alcohol too, because now you're adding volume in a different area. So a sour with some carbonation, highly, highly, highly recommended as an easy crowd pleaser. And you can go crazy on the carbonation side, whether it be, like we mentioned, just soda water, LaCroix, sparkling wine, which you could cross utilize on the wine side, all kinds of fun stuff in there as well. And then I think the other ones too, that I don't really go a lot of lot too crazy, but um, one of the other areas they could do is kind of more along the highball, which is a single, single spirit and a single mixer. We talked about the carbonation element and that's typically what we see, but it's generally a two-part cocktail. So one of the things you could do on that side is you could have like an infused alcohol if you want to, to really kind of add value, a perceived value to the, to the list, to the menu there, or on the carbonation side, you could really have a lot of creativity in it as well. Corroyals kind of fall into that highball category because you have a liqueur and you have a sparkling element, which is the wine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's always one of my favorites to kind of bring up in a conversation when it comes to beverages for large, large events and stuff. Um, because once again, you can only bring so much stuff. And if you can cross utilize as many ingredients as possible throughout all your beverage offerings, it really gives you a, a significant advantage. And that won't even, we won't even start talking about non-alcoholics, but the more you can kind of bridge all those gaps, the more tools you have at your disposal, the more successful you're going to be. And the more you probably charge, to be completely honest. Yeah, the sparkling component adds a few different things. Well, at least a couple. One is texture. So mm-hmm. the mouthfeel of something that's carbonated is more interesting. Um, right. It also opens things up. So the flavors are a little bit more, I would say, observable when there is carbonation because it's actually being aerated ever so slightly. The third thing is carbonation actually helps the alcohol enter your system 20% faster. <laughs> Little tip, little tip, add, add, add a little carbonation and you'll feel it faster, which is one of the reasons why sparkling wine it hits you so much faster than like still wine. Absolutely. And that's kind of the, the con that, that you're exactly right. And whenever I offer that as a offering for a venue, um, I always try to scale back some of the alcohol, for that exact reason. So lower your volume, like instead of two ounces or one and a half, whatever your standard pour is, then I'll pull it back a little bit because of that exact reason. I don't want them to get overly intoxicated too quickly. I I try to manage that from a customer service uh, side. Right. Right. Good for us to know as we're serving people uh, that anything with carbonation is going to hit a little bit faster. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So I have a good grasp on what the sour looks like and what the highball looks like. What is a mule? A mule is essentially a highball. So Mules are kind of everywhere now. They're ubiquitous when it comes to cocktails. And, it, and the classic kind of formula is vodka, ginger beer, is a Moscow mule. Uh, you can put a squeeze of lime in there to kind of brighten up some of those flavors. But that's essentially it. And so when you look at that, if you kind of step back one, one level and not say vodka and ginger beer, instead you say base spirit and carbonated beverage. So now you can start plugging things in. I think we kind of alluded to this before, but... If you imagine your cocktail is a Mr. Potato Head, 
and the eyes are the alcohol, the base spirit. You can plug in any kind of different setups you want. The sunglasses could be the tequila. That actually seems fitting, actually. Uh, <laughs> <you know? laughs> so you can kind of swap pieces out left and right. Um, and maybe the uh, carbonation is more of the mouth. And so you take that away. You start putting some other things in there. You can start building your own ingredients, like a carbonated cranberry juice, where you add a little bit of simple syrup to it. And all of a sudden, you've got this really interesting mixer that you could serve on its own for a non-alcoholic, or you can use it in a cocktail as well. So now you have a, a cranberry, let's say it's a cranberry, rosemary, ginger, carbonated mixer. You can serve that on its own, you know, add a little bit of soda water to kind of thin it out and uh, take away some of the sweetness, or you could use it more in a concentrated form in a cocktail. And now you have a cranberry, rosemary, ginger mule. And that just, I mean, once you start playing with these flavors and start to build all these things, it builds interest and it gives you an opportunity to charge a little bit more money because these are not available widely. So you're demonstrating your skill and some of the value that you can provide your customers as well. Yeah, absolutely. What, so as you mentioned, we were talking about the mule. I always added lime juice directly into like the recipe when I'm building a mule. Um, you mentioned that it was, or at least you alluded to, I think that like the lime was always just the garnish, right? Mm-hmm. It was, and a lot of times I see mobile bars get super fancy with their garnishes. So they got flowers and they, they've got, dehydrated fruits, which look stunningly, they are visually stunning. Yeah. But I come from the food side of things. I was in the restaurant industry for uh, 15 years. The garnish was always meant to be usable and edible. (laughs) So, So as you're talking, I'm realizing that us event people need to recognize that if we start using alternative garnishes for our cocktails, we need to make sure we're compensating for those ingredients in the actual recipe itself. Because the lime is very important to the mule. It is. And this is some of the things that we we kind of hint at the certification side of it is like, if you're going to offer that as a garnish to the drink, you better assume that they're going to squeeze it in and throw it, up, throw it in the drink. So there's a balance component to there, right? So it wouldn't make sense to put a lime on a flip because that's going to be really obnoxious kind of flavor combination. It's not going to do well. So there is always that assumption that if it's on the glass or in the glass, then it is a vital component of the cocktail. So when you put a lime on a a side of a glass, you're now giving control to your guests to say, you can alter this cocktail from a balanced perspective of acid by adding this in or not. It's an option. So it's always one of those processes that we teach of like, okay, go through the thought process from a customer perspective. Does that actually apply to your cocktail? If not, don't give them that. Put a wheel on there instead because nobody's going to, almost nobody's going to squeeze a wheel into a, into a cocktail. It gets really have to be messy. committed to it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but this is really important too. Like you said, I come from the culinary side as well, uh, restaurants. And if it's on the plate, it's because you've made a mental choice and a mental uh, decision to give that to the customer to enjoy as part of their meal or part of their cocktail. So yeah, it better contribute uh, somehow, in my opinion, to the drink. I wonder, and this is just me philosophizing at this point, is that yeah. that's even a word. I wonder if garnishes first started as a way for people to personalize their cocktail experience. Like we're going to put the garnish on here, use it or don't use it. If you do use it, it'll make it tartar or sweeter or whatever that garnish is, right? Because I can't, if I, if I was to look back historically, like why garnishes? It wasn't necessarily to make the drink look prettier, right? That's not 
it's not kind of how alcohol rolled back then. You know what I mean? It was very um, functional back in the day. It was yeah. very functional. It had a purpose, right? And so was the garnish maybe something that started as like, we're entertaining and this is how the cocktail is. But if it's not sweet enough or because they had like sugar cubes and stuff. So maybe, maybe, maybe I don't know. I'm not sure if you know either, but as we're talking about the usefulness of garnishes, and how it does kind of give the person that you're handing the cocktail to a little bit of control over their drinking experience. Maybe that was always part of it. It was like, make your own experience by utilizing the garnish or not. I don't know. Yeah. And it's really interesting because this is kind of the second, we call this the second wave of cocktails. The first wave actually happened in late 1800s, early 1900s. And that was the golden age of cocktails. Things that we're learning now and teaching and educating other people on, on in the cocktail space started back then. And we've lost a lot of that because of prohibition. So I bet the answer kind of was in that place because they were making very fancy cocktails there. And then they kind of stopped with prohibition. And the first craft cocktail scene that came after prohibition was actually tiki. So I bet there's some roots of that because as we all know, tiki is a very immersive experience. It is about the story. It is about those visual elements and surrounding yourself in that atmosphere of escapism. So I bet there's a lot of carryover from that. And uh, I think along the way, we just forgot or didn't care. And then so 70s and 80s, when everything's out of a sweet and sour bottle and all that stuff, it's like, I don't know why we just keep doing it. So I'm going to do it too. So I think there might be a little bit of that legacy thing going on. But I think uh, recently over the last 10, 15 years, people have been a lot more thoughtful into their approach on cocktails. So I bet a lot of people are probably revisiting and kind of examining the same way you are of like, huh, I really wonder why. And when you start answering those those questions, that's where it really gets nerdy and deep and like rabbit hole. A week later, you find one recipe from like 1750. You're like, that's it. That's gotta be it. (laughs) Where it came from. I love that you mentioned Tiki. One of my hobbies, it's not really a hobby, but when I travel, one of the things that's always on my list of things to do in new cities is to find their Tiki joint and to belly up to the bar there because I've never met a bartender who knows more about the craft than tiki bartenders. I mean, this is probably a bit of a generalization now that it's going a bit more mainstream, but even, you know, five, six years ago, tiki tenders, I'm going to call them the tiki tenders just were so passionate about the craft. They knew the history of it, the different rums, the flavor profiles. And I, next time I go, I'm going to ask them if they know where the garnish came from. (laughs) That's a great idea. And yeah, they're next level. I mean, tiki is so rich in history and kind of controversy and storytelling it's just part of who what that movement is all about so yeah i agree with you when when you start to pick the brain of somebody that's deep in the tiki it's it's next one of the best interviews i ever had on the podcast was beach bomberry who's basically the indiana jones of tiki and i could have talked to him for days and he's just an amazing storyteller that yeah tiki is such an amazing kind of culture. It's almost like culty, but like fun. I don't know. (laughs) Well, we don't do a ton of tiki in events, which Mm -hmm. we we could, but I think it's a very specific clientele that is looking for tiki, especially based on where you are like locality wise. So we don't do a lot of rum in my area of the, like the country it exists, but we don't, we, we typically gravitate towards whiskey and bourbons. I'm, I'm in Tennessee and vodka. Obviously we, we do much of those more tequila than in recent years, than probably when I first started in 2016. But if you go down to like Florida in Miami area, they're like, how many rums can we have? <laughs> it's true. 
Yeah. So much room. But I think one of the things that we do see a lot of, as Vince mentioned before, are sours. We do see a lot of highballs. Every once in a while, we'll get the spirit forwards, like the martinis, the uh, old fashions. Old fashions are a big favorite. The mint julep. Kentucky, obviously, you're going to see a little bit of that. Let's talk about how we scale. How do we do good craft cocktails that people will pay more for at scale? What are some tips and tricks that help preserve the, uh, I would say, quality, the, the quality of cocktails when done at scale? Yeah, and this is a really tricky question because it all it always depends on your timeline, your abilities, what the cocktail is, the ingredients you're using, because everything kind of has a window, right? So when it, when I approach a large venue and I start going through the process of like, all right, I need to start bashing things out, I try to make everything as fast and as easy in the moment as I possibly can, right? So when I'm thinking about batching, I'm thinking about volume service. I'm thinking about just pumping through cocktails because if I do it properly, I could probably handle 200 people by myself if I'm set up correctly and I have everything with me potentially three, but that's, you're really going to have to hustle and be proactive at that point. So there's a couple big things when it comes to preparing yourself for that level of volume. You can think about prepping all your ingredients in a large bucket or a large format so that you can draw from that and stuff like that. That's fine. But when it comes to delivery and service, you need to think about that as well, right? So one of the things I, I did uh, an event early on, and I, I kind of regretted really quickly, is I bought this really beautiful, elaborate water spigot, uh, water container, basically, and it had a spigot on it. And I'm like, this is great. I'm going to go through volume and it's going to be fantastic because I could just pour this, build three of these out. I have three different cocktails that I can just pump through, no problem. The problem that I found when I started doing that is the size of the spigot was so small that the time it took me to make every single cocktail, I could have done all the minute faster. So the output is really, really important, whether it be like a ladle, like a punch bowl or something like that. Or, you know, just a high volume nozzle that you could pull open up and serve quickly. That's super, super important because it doesn't matter how much you have behind you as far as backstock. If you can't get it out fast enough, you've created your own worst enemy. So at the delivery side, is really important. On the batching side, I try to isolate things logically. So not only from a quality perspective, but also from a business perspective. So my alcohols, when I batch, I batch in single bottle portions. And then I build my syrups and mixers accordingly. So for example, if we take that formula 211 for a sour, when you look at the volume, one part sweet, one part sour, that equals two. So I batch everything from the sweet and sour perspective as the same volume as my bottle of spirit. Okay, so if you're doing 750s, if you're doing one mil or uh, liters, then my mixer is going to be one liter. So I can, if I'm in the weeds and I know I'm going to be, I can grab one bottle of vodka, one bottle of mixer, throw it in my container, empty it out, throw it away, and I'm on to my next person, right? So those are the ways you can really prepare yourself for success early on. If you start to manipulate some of the ingredients, and maybe it's like a two, one part alcohol to one and a half part mixer, build that into the thing. So you have a one and a half liter bottle, and you have a one liter of spirit, and you just dump and go. You have to be able to do that at scale quickly, or else you're done. <laughs> you're buried. Yes. So. I call that micro batching. My goal is always to get all of my cocktails down to a two-part pickup. And 
most of the event bartenders, as you probably know, are dry hire. That's kind of the industry term, yep. meaning we don't pay for the alcohol. We don't sell them the alcohol. We show up with everything else. And so the alcohol isn't even available for batching until we get there, if at all, right? And so the way that you just described is, in my opinion, uh, and clearly yours too, the best way to be able to do all the batching that you possibly can do with all the ingredients that you have control of. And so when you get there, it then just becomes opening up that bottle of alcohol, knowing the rest of the, the cocktail is bottled also. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also, you can convey that to your guests when you talk to them, like, I'm not going to open any spirits unless I use it. So that way they're not spending extra money on alcohol and stuff like that. Just let them be conscious that you're conscious of that as a price component. And also just be flexible. Like you're going to give your client a laundry list of things to buy. And, you know, you're going to say, I want to, I want a one liter bottle of this. Don't be surprised if you show up and it's a 1.75, like have that handle every time <laughs> it, it's good. It's inevitable. I mean, cause they, they don't know why you're doing what you're doing. They're just saying, Oh, he wants vodka. Great. Get a couple of handles from Costco or wherever. Right. So be flexible, be ready for that because it's going to happen. And yeah. on the other side, if you become a leader and they throw a 750 at you, just know that you need to kind of change out your options there. Um, so yeah, micro batching hundred percent. That's the best way to do it. So I always combine the sweetener and the acid. And if you chill it, add some water to it as well, because you're, whenever you shake a cocktail, you're adding about 20 to 30% water. So if you're not shaking, everything's cold already, you have to account for that water somewhere. And that could be part of your build when you micro batch. So that's also one kegs. You could do kegs if you want. It's something I really highly recommend if you have like a pony keg or something like that. And you can do a carbonated cocktail. You can build it in there. You might have to start working with refined acids or clarified lime juice and stuff like that. You can start to get really nerdy. But when we're talking about scale and volume and just a customer service kind of wow factor, that's pretty cool. You know, being able to just have three cocktails on tap or even two cocktails and a wine and beer, and you just pump through all of it, it really will save you a lot during service for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of kegging cocktails. I myself had a a, a tap wall and a tap trailer. So anything I can put on a keg, I was definitely putting on a keg. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know that anyone that is a distributor or in charge of distributing alcohol is ever going to listen to this podcast, but I am going to make a small plea to anyone who sells their product in a handle, please make it holdable in some form. I can't tell you how many times I've had to baby hold a, a large bottle of tequila specifically. I'm going to call out the tequila industry a little bit because I feel like they're giant square bottles or they're giant round bottles. Like I cannot get my female sized hands around it without making it look like I'm weak as, as heck. Now Tito's has a handle. Thank yep. you. Even though it's glass, at least it has a handle, but so many of these large, like large format bottles are almost impossible for us women to, to actually serve from in a way that doesn't make us look like children. <laughs> it's true. And it's funny, like when I go, when I was in a restaurant business, that was one thing I always considered when I was buying uh, the spirits in my uh, well is how comfortable is it in my hand? Can I grab it at speed? And so, yeah, it's a big consideration. You know, the ergonomics of tending bar is no joke. No joke. And I've heard that there is intention behind that, specifically when it comes to restaurants and bars, because if you find a bottle that is not well-suited for the well, that's on purpose. Right. They want it on the back bar so people can see it, so they can actually call it out. 
Here's another one of my rants. I'm going to go a little sideways on you here real quick. And I apologize to everybody listening. And they, this kind of goes along the lines of being deliberate about where they want your bottles. Patron and Hendrix in particular are notorious for this, where the neck size, the interior neck size of the bottle will not hold a pour spout. And you put a pour spout in it and you pull, put it upside down and it just leaks everywhere. And that's not on accident. That's on purpose. So I hate you guys. I get what you're doing. It makes my life hell. <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add on. The Hendrix handle has a built-in rubber speed pourer that oh. is crap. It is It drizzles out at the slowest pace known to man. And I'm sorry. I'm, I'm like, I'm built for speed here. I have to rip that thing out every time, which of course then the other speed pours don't fit in it. So you're having to free pour or use a jigger, which slows me way down. I love Hendrix from a flavor profile. I absolutely hate tending bar from it with it from an event standpoint because there's no winning. You can't use yep. it, the speed pour. You can't not use the speed pour. It's a, it's a nightmare. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I feel better already just venting a little bit. I, I feel more calm. The calm <laughs> I'm sending this directly to Hendrix. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we have some product feedback for you. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, I have a lot of control over what my, my clients buy. If I'm like, Oh, Hendrix is a pain in the ass to work with. All I have to say is, you know what actually is a good alternative and maybe slightly a little cheaper than Hendrix? It's whatever this is, right? And yep. they're immediately like, well, you're the professional. I will take that advice. So yep. I'm just saying, you gotta be careful who you piss off and then your product development because it's so true. you could be missing out on the dollar dollar bills. <laughs> uh, the other thing that you were mentioning about your beverage dispenser and how it just poured so slowly I, I learned this the hard way, and I know this is probably basic science, but look, I did not go to school for science. I went to school mm. for business. They create this little vacuum if you have the top on where yeah. like it's pouring fine, pouring fine, and then it's like trickle, trickle, trickle. And I'm like, yeah. oh my gosh, it's clogged. What could possibly be clogging? You take off the top and you're like, oh, I think it's fine. And then it pours fine and then it stops pouring fine. It's You have to keep like in some of them, you have to keep them open just a little bit. <laughs> yep. It's in true. Order to keep yeah, because yeah, if you have that that seal, the gasket on top, you're absolutely right. It's going to create that vacuum. It's not going to want to let go of that damn liquid. I am right. ready to make cocktails. <laughs> the issues that, that it's almost impossible to plan for those things. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. So we have talked about micro batching. We've talked about kegging. Those are my two favorite methods for setting yourself up for success. Talk to me a little bit about, and maybe you have information here, maybe not, garnishes for things like, okay, we're going to talk about the dreaded mojito. Okay, the dreaded mojito. So they're delicious and they're refreshing. I used to work on a beach and I probably made a thousand mojitos a day. My wrists were super strong at the time. Slapping the mint, muddling the lime. It is not very conducive for events. So if I was to hire you, Chris, to do a mojito at my event, what would you do to set yourself up for success? That's a really hard question because those are notorious cocktails to make, especially for venues, for large events. There's a couple of things I would probably entertain. First of all, mint syrup, maybe even a mint and uh, lime oleosaccharum. Uh, so an oleosaccharum, I'm sure most of you are familiar, is using the peels of the lime juice or the limes macerating it in sugar, basically putting it in a plastic bag with sugar and just letting it pull the oils out. So you're going to get a little bit more flavor out of that. And so I would create something along those lines. So get a lime oleosaccharum, add some mint in there to create like a more simple syrup that's focused on that. The freshness of mint is always the, the kind of the, the linchpin in that, that equation. You're going to have mint flavor, but it's going to be a little bit more subdued. 
So what I would probably recommend is doing that syrup, adding a little bit of fresh mint, almond oot, even shake it or bruise it, however you're going to do it for volume, for speed, and then just building the cocktail as fast as you possibly can. So the mint oleosaccharum, a mint lime oleosaccharum, a little bit of fresh mint, you, a little bit will go a long way once you have all those other flavor profiles in there. And um, just do it quickly, like not muddling it as you normally would behind a service bar, doing lighter mint, and then just build it quickly. So that, that would kind of be the direction I would go. Love it. That's a, that's a hell of a, that's a hell of a cocktail to make for, for, for large format. Yeah. Yeah. I try and talk people out of it as often as I can because of that reason, especially if they're anything more than like 50 people, but sometimes they got to have what they got to have. So I I love the idea and the creativity of creating the, what is the word again? Yeah. The oleo. Yes. I always say that wrong. I always say that one. And then there's that tiki syrup. That's like that. Uh, Yes, Orja. Yeah. I always say that one wrong too. <laughs> uh, and that one might lend itself to to uh, kegging if you can figure out the pulps and all that. That can be a little bit tricky, but um, you're adding the carbonation. You have that kind of fizziness to it, so that might help with volume as well. Is potentially going that direction. Absolutely. Yeah. So a bar above is a company that focuses on education and it focuses on equipment. And we'll talk about the education part. We already mentioned it really briefly in the beginning. Mm-hmm. What made you start selling uh, bar equipment? So that's a really good question. We started off in the blog in 2013, I want to say. So we started doing YouTube videos in the beginning. And at that point, I had already attended bar for about a decade. And I, I, I had used a lot of the, the equipment out there at the point. So we started getting a lot of traction in the YouTube space. And with the information we were teaching, it was pretty cutting edge at the point. at that point. And so we got a lot of people asking us, like, what bar tools do you recommend? And at that point, there was nobody online uh, from Amazon that was doing a two-part shaker, a Boston shaker. There was two people in the space and the small cup, the Cheaterton and the large one, they didn't fit together well. So it was like underneath the top and it was, it was terrible, bad reviews, whole nine yards. So I'm like, okay, well, clearly there's, there's room here. So we decided to make our own. There was another big supplier in the space but their customer service was terrible. You paid for everything, shipping, handling, all of it. And so like a regular cocktail shaker would end up being $30 for one. And it it was just not a good experience in my opinion. So then we launched, which is a whole fun, different story uh, about the, of starting your own business from that perspective and the timing of it. But we launched, we bought a thousand units. We tapped in the last of our savings and we're like, okay, I hope this works. So we bought maybe a thousand or 2000 or 3000 and we sold out in three days, 30 days. And we're like, oh, okay, well, that worked. So then we just kept doing it. And then for me, I'm really highly focused on customer service in everything that we do. It's just part of who I am. So for us, when we go to make a new bar tool, we approach it from a customer service perspective for the bartender. So I want our tools to be the best, most durable, most economical tools you can possibly get in your hands. So we go above and beyond when it comes to creating bar tools that work together and just function. So we, we take a lot of care in that. So that's kind of how we started. And I know where the weakness is in bar tools because I've broken pretty much everything there is to break behind a bar. And so we solve a lot of those durability issues and adding functionality. For example, like our jiggers. In the past, there have only been jiggers that have traditionally no, two sides. One is one ounce, one is a two ounce, and it may have one marking on each side. So on the one ounce side, it might have a half ounce marking. And on the other side, it might have a two ounce to the top and one and a half ounce to the, is the only other line in there. 
it doesn't make a lot of sense, especially when you're doing like really high level cocktail creation. So we made every quarter ounce line starting at a quarter ounce all the way up to two has a line. And so it's much more functional. And we, I believe we're the only bar tool company that has a bar spoon measure inside the jigger because bar spoons aren't consistent. So let's make it consistent. So that's kind of how we approach bar uh, tool design is from my anger, frustration. Um, <laughs> love it. We, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. Oh, it's funny. Like I have like a set of, of jiggers and every bartender, when I create my bar kits, every bartender gets multiple jiggers because they are different sizes. And I literally had a, a bartender come up to me once and say, this calls for an ounce and a half. And I only have a one ounce jigger. Like, what do I do? <laughs> and so like having that just, well, oh my gosh, just such a small thing, but like how useful that is. That's yeah. Oh. And that's because of the frustration I had behind the bar too. So oftentimes it's funny, like I'll go into a bar, like not, not really a sales call, more of like a, a brand awareness call. And I'll tell them like, what, cocktail jiggers are you using? And so they'll put it on the bar and I'll put mine right next to it. That's all it takes. I mean, the minute you put it in your hand, the minute you see it, you're like, wow, okay, I get it. It is just that good. So um, it makes our job a lot easier from that perspective. Absolutely. It's, I'm a little embarrassed as you were talking about all the poorly fitted cocktail shakers. I'm a little embarrassed at how many cocktail shakers that I have that I refuse to use because they leak, they get stuck. I can't ever get the top off one. Yeah. Like this one has a terrible, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, seems like you only have one job. <laughs> right, exactly. You have one job. The mason jar ones are my, like, I hate them more than anything else in the world. There was that for, the, for a while there, there was the mason jar shakers that had like the little top crap. Garbage. <laughs> Just garbage. <laughs> Not to mention, I don't want to have to screw something on and off in order to get what. Yeah, no, it's funny because I I feel the same way about protein shakers. Like, I haven't had a protein shaker yet that still is like, I'll shake it, you know, get the protein going, all that stuff that doesn't leak on me while I'm shaking the damn thing. I'm like, I'm just going to use a cocktail shaker from now on because I know (laughs) it's not going to (laughs) leak. That's so smart. There's your, you can actually just use your same product and relabel it as a protein shaker. And you've got an entirely new product line. I think I think we might have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. So the other thing that you do really, really well is you teach, which I always appreciate someone who is so good at their craft, but that can also parlay that into teaching because it's, I have found over the years of doing what I do that people who are really good at what they do aren't always really good at teaching what they do. It's a totally different skill set, and you are really good at both. And you have an online course, mm-hmm. and it is a six week course. Is that is that or it's at your own pace? It's at your own pace. We recommend a nine weeks. Um, okay, and it, it really depends on you. We have people that go through it in a week, but they have bloodshot eyes and they're sick of seeing me at the end of it. But it really is up to you. Uh, the pace that we recommend is about nine weeks, just because the density of the material it's pretty deep. But yeah, we don't want to scare anyone off because it's deep, but it's useful. And, and the reason why I'm even giving it airtime here is, is because a vast number of people enter the mobile bar space, not because they have a background in bartending, but because they have a passion for hospitality. They enjoy entertaining. They love the look and the, the concept of working and supporting people through some of the most special days of their lives. And I do tell people that bartending is the 
potentially easiest thing as a business owner that we'll do. There's a lot of parts of owning a business that are harder than bartending. It's not that bartending is rocket science, but it is science. (laughs) So if you are in the business of owning a mobile bar, it would behoove everyone to know a little something about the craft and the trade that they're representing. And so my, I highly recommend the, the course that you're, it, the course is a steal of, of a price. It's $150, yeah. $147 or something. And on that hindsight, when, or in the end, after you've taken the, the, the class, you come out with it, understanding how to build a cocktail that tastes good. And you can then talk about it. And that's one of the most important skills as a business owner, especially if you are leading someone through a cocktail tasting or you're helping them pick their cocktails, or even in in many cases, you can cross-utilize the skills that you learn about cocktails into what wines to recommend, what beers to recommend, um, because you know a little something about flavor profiles. And so it just gives you so much more confidence in being able to talk about your cocktails and being able to sell that service. And so if you were one of those people listening that has not come up through the restaurant and bartending scene and you feel a little lackluster in your knowledge about, about cocktails, this is the course. And it's not just an online course, although it is, there are actual humans that are reviewing the work, right? So you get feedback based on the work that you do. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's a really, it, it was a course that I always wanted to create because it had not been out there at that point. I think we made it in 2014, but there's tests at the end of every module, there is additional homework if you want to go deep dive into any specific subject. And there's a community behind it as well. We have a couple of Facebook groups where you can chime in, ask questions and all that. And at the end is a two-part final. So you have multiple choice. And then there's an actual physical, not, well, yeah, physical element to it as well, where you have to demonstrate all the skills along the way of manipulating the ingredients to come up with a really good cocktail. And somebody grades it. Like you submit it to us through an email. And Rob, who's in charge of our education, looks at your test, make sure that you follow directions and you understand the protocol, and he will actually grade it and send it back to you with a certification. So we take a lot of pride in it. There's nothing else like it that I've ever seen, but it really is in a hope to transfer as much of that knowledge and build as much confidence quickly as possible. Awesome. Chris, this has been such a joy for, for the listeners. If you want more of Chris, take his course because you get a lot more of him there. And uh, you also learn a lot more from him. So thank you so much for your time today. I'm sure you and I will bump into each other more uh, going forward. This was the tip of the iceberg of the amount of information that you have to share with the world. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation, Sarah. It's been, it's been a lot of fun being on this side of the camera. <laughs> And that wraps up today's episode. I hope it was valuable. I would love to hear from you what you thought. You can drop me a line at hello at mobilebevpros.com or find me on Instagram at mobilebevpros. If you're looking for more valuable mobile bar related content, we have a website full of it. You can find us at www.mobilebevpros.com. And I'd love to see you in our Facebook community, also by the name of, you guessed it, Mobile Bev Pros. Thank you for joining me today. And until next time, cheers.